0: We're going through a series in, uh, in these sermons um, called Excuses. And uh, today we're looking at the, uh, the title, Well, That Didn't Work. Ever heard anybody say that? That didn't work. And we might ask, why do people come to the point where they give up and they say, Well, that didn't work. Could it be that it was not a good plan in the first place? Could it be that it was a good plan but not executed well enough? Could it be a result of faulty expectations? Could it be that the plan was not explained well enough in the first place? Or could it be the uh, one executing the plan was more interested in something else and didn't catch the value of what he had before him. Could be a range of things or why people might get to that stage and say, oh, well, that didn't work. Of course, the, the inference there is I'll never try that again because it's useless. It didn't work, so it's not, so not going to work for me. So good things may be clearly good, but still not be the best going for the best means that sometimes we need to pass over a lesser good there was a rich young ruler who came to jesus now the gospels reveal different elements of their discussion that they had between each other and we'll take it from matthew 19:16 to 22 matthew 19:16 to 22 um, and behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now that's a good question to ask, isn't it? Really good question to ask, and he asked the right person. All right, So he's right on, right on the knocker straight away. And Jesus said, said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good if you would enter life keep the commandments and he said to him which ones and uh, just the other day when i was looking at that i was, uh, that particular question hadn't jumped out to me like it did the other day which ones which ones must i what what was he saying there he was uh he was responding to the tremendous amount of Legalistic tradition that the Jewish leaders had had dumped upon the people. God never required it of them, but the Jewish leaders created all these kind of things and uh, legalistic things, and uh, and they had little workarounds some of their uh, some of their rules that they brought in so that they could break the rules, but nobody else could. And uh, like, for instance, you're only supposed to walk at a certain distance on the Sabbath. But if you placed a parcel of food at that distance, then you could go another distance on the Sabbath. So there are all sorts of little workarounds. And and so this rich young ruler is uh, puzzling with Jesus. Yeah, but which ones? There are so many of them. There are libraries of them. Well, Jesus cut it right to the core and he said, And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept. In other words, Jesus, you're not telling me anything new. All these things I have kept, what do I still lack? You see, in his heart he knew that he lacked something and people know in their heart that they lack something and and there's a puzzle going on in their minds. If I died now, would I be right to stand in the judgment seat or, or stand before the judgment seat of Christ? How would I fare standing before the judge of all judges? That's a question which rolls around in many people's minds, and it did in, his, in this mind. And, and, he's, and he said, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, then go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Now bear in mind that this was a question directed to that individual may not be necessarily to you, but the principle involved in this is applicable to us all. What do you love the most? That's what Jesus was really getting at. It wasn't the possessions things. It wasn't saying, oh, you've got too many possessions. It's the love. You see, he said, love your neighbour as yourself. And he thought that he had loved his neighbours all, all his life when really he had all this huge wealth, and Jesus was obviously telling him that, uh, look, you've got all this wherewithal, and look at all these poor people around you. And how did that young man respond? Well, with great sadness. For it says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The rich young ruler came across Jesus and asked him, what do I have to do to get to heaven? It was an honest question and it received an honest answer that was um, tailored for his particular need. And the young man's response revealed where his real love was. His real love was not on the two commandments which God gives us all to, to follow, and that is to love God with our whole heart and our neighbour as ourselves. Pretty simple, isn't it? Can you remember that? Can you count one, two? One, two, one, two, one, two. That's all we have to do. One, two. But then again, Adam only had one command to play don't eat of that tree. So maybe there's something a bit harder going on here. You see, he had the desire to go to heaven when he would leave leave this world, but he loved the temporary wealth found here that he could touch, he could feel, he could see it, more than the eternal wealth of heaven that he had to receive by faith. You see, this is a problem for some in their understanding of what they can expect when following Jesus. One of the greatest problems is unreal expectations that spring out of a sighted walk rather than a walk of faith. Uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and he was reminding those troubled people that we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. And he said, for we walk by faith, not by sight. The complaint that I tried at once and it failed is to misunderstand the character of God and his work in the individual. The great work of God is to heal the individual from his main sickness that brings about all problems, that little three-letter word, with I in the middle, sin. In uh, Isaiah 53, verse 5, Isaiah 53 is, uh, is a great uh, prophetic passage uh, that talks about the coming of Christ and on the cross and so on. And we read in verse 5 of Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him smitten and stricken of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. Now, there are some important words in this passage, and if you want to do a Bible study, Uh, then one of the good things to do is look for important words in the passage. Look for words that really say something, that have got a lot of picture behind them. And so we see there, I picked out uh, at least seven, and uh, they are griefs, sorrows, esteem, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our transgressions, peace, with his stripes we are healed. Now, we would have those up on the screen so you could write them down quickly, but uh, I can send you the PowerPoint if you want. But in this text, sin is spoken of as a disease. It is a disease which is, humanly speaking, incurable. The only cure is a vicarious one. Do you know what vicarious means? It's a tough word, isn't it? Uh, Vicarious means, in this context, that Jesus took the horrible tasting medicine instead of us. That is, in our place and by faith in Jesus and his vicarious act on the cross, the medical effects upon sin are given to us. Jesus did it on the cross. He took the... Medicine that we couldn't take. And he took it on the cross, but we get the benefits of it. And so that's why it says he took our griefs, he took our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken. And I thought esteemed. We esteemed him stricken. Esteemed means highly valued. And that's exactly what the, 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 uh, the, cross, the work of the cross is. It's a highly valued thing that we ought to highly value. And then it goes on, wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our transgressions, and he brought about the peace. So this sickness that we had, this sin sickness that uh, Adam brought into this world brought a war between God and man, and the war was going on and on and on and on and on. And there are still people right around this world fighting that war and we see it reported about in the news daily, how people treat each other so terribly and how, how there's um, lots of things that happen in this world which we just wonder why do people do that. Well, I tell you, because they don't have peace with God. And they're living unto their own selves. They're living unto their own selfishness and their own desires. But Jesus Christ brought peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. So we have in this, sin is a spiritual disease. Humanly speaking, an incurable spiritual disease. By the suffering of Jesus on the cross, sin is spiritually Cured vicariously on our behalf. He cured us. But that cure is only there if we receive it by faith. When people try God and He fails them, they are looking too much on the physical and not near enough on the spiritual. Remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And this God, Jesus, achieved our peace with God and spiritual redemption on the cross, as the text says, with his stripes we are healed. And I think that's a really important message for the Christian church to take out into the world. So... Who is this God who brought the cure to an otherwise incurable disease? He is the God who created this world and man as a pinnacle of his creation. From a Calvinist wording, the reason for creation is God created man that we might know him and enjoy him forever. Isn't it lovely? Isn't it lovely? This is a divine act of the extension of love that others may be fulfilled. God didn't have to create this to be fulfilled himself. He didn't have to create you and I to be fulfilled himself because he is fulfilled within himself. He wants to share himself just as the marriage vows reflect this um, sharing of one another. So God wants to share himself with mankind. From a Wesleyan Methodist wording perspective, why did God create this world and man? God's purpose for humanity, we believe that God's whole law is summarised in the two great commandments, to love God with all our heart and uh, and fast cars driving down the street. <laughs> Did you hear that? It's pretty, pretty loud, isn't it? I'll read that again. We believe that God's whole law is summarised in the two great commandments, to love God with all our heart and to love our neighbours as much as we love ourselves. These two laws describe how we ought to live in every aspect of life, reminding us that God is our King and all people are equal before Him. If we live according to these laws of love, It continues on, we will fully obey God and treat people as we ought to treat them. That's what our denomination believes. And um, if you follow the evolutionary uh, uh, answer to the origins of man, you end up with having lots of races of people who evolved in different places around 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 the world. But God created one race called humanity. And you and I, everyone here, and even that fellow roared down the street there, we all have the one mother and the one father. What's their name? Adam and Eve. We all come from Adam and Eve. And that is why God says we ought to love one another because we are family. We're family. Whether somebody believes and follows Christ doesn't change that fact that, humanly speaking, we are family. God's interaction with his creation from the start has been to extend his love to it ever since Adam brought sin into the mix. And God's interaction was not, has not faltered but has been consistent as reflected in the atoning work of Christ on that cross. Uh, John 15 verse 13 says, Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus goes on to say, You are my friends if you do what I command you. Do you follow Christ? Maybe you are not there yet. Remember that KFC ad, that Kentucky Fried ad? Not there yet. The wheels are talking, the wheels are talking. Not there yet. But maybe you are not there yet. You've heard about Christ and you you are wondering. Well, that's a good place to be. It's a good place to start. But uh, don't stop there. This one true God is able to do things. First of all is to fulfil his promise. In Romans 4, chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 16 through to 21, if you want to uh, quickly look that up, Romans 4, 16 through to 21, I'm going to read it. I'd like you to listen carefully. And the last verse is what I want to, want to talk to you about. Uh, that is why, and I might, before I start, previous part of Paul's letter to the Roman church, he was talking about the law, uh, God's law and uh, the law of the Old Testament and, and the Jewish people who are trying to bring people back under the law when there was the grace of Christ that was already in this world and in this great mix. And, uh, and he had finished talking about the law and then he says this, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Uh, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old and his Sarah, his wife, was 90-something. 93, I think it was, or something like that. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And this is the verse I want you to grab hold of today. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Abraham had probably the biggest faith challenge of us all and until he learnt better, he, um, he tried to do things his own way and he, he took things into his own hands and he ended up making a bigger problem for the world than he, uh, than he was trying to fix. Uh, see, he tried to force God's hand, but he learnt later on to just follow God and trust his promise. And when we impatiently take things in our own hands, we cease trusting God and we too create a bigger problem than we are trying to fix. And so in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 17, we see that uh, God is able to deliver you. Uh, In the Old Testament we see lots of experiences where uh, people are in terrible situations and God delivered them. And we see some in the New Testament days too. But this one we'll take from uh, the Old Testament with King Nebuchadnezzar and uh, the three Jewish boys, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And just a few verses here it says, and Nebuchadnezzar was talking to those three boys and uh, you remember the story how he had built this 90-foot gold tower of himself. Uh, image of himself, and everybody was to bow down and worship this. But that was an affront to the Jewish people, and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down, and uh, and it was noticed. and uh, And then the king said to him, "And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands?" Uh, chapter three and verse seventeen. Daniel 3, verse 17. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You puffed up, wasn't he? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, "O Nebuchadnezzar, you have no need to sorry, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king." Remember that fiery furnace, it was a it was a quite a fearsome thing. And the three young Jewish boys were saying to saying that God will deliver them one way or the other as God willed. But there was a third option which God chose. Their trust was completely in God and they would obey whichever way it went. You see, the, 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 the third option was that God would sustain them through the fiery trial. Now you have fiery trials in your life. How do you approach them? God, take it away from me. Sometimes... The fiery trials can be so straining that we might even wish to die, to get out of it. But you see, that was the two options that the boys considered. But the third option was that Jesus would come into their experience and stand with them in the flames and sustain them through it. Now, whatever fiery trial you might come across in this world, I want you to know that Jesus is able to sustain you through it. Hear what it says, the result. The king was furious that his order to worship the statue of himself uh, and that these boys defied him because the king's, order was urgent and the uh, furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took those three blokes up to throw them in there. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, fell bound, bound, you know, they're tied up, bound into the burning fiery furnace. And then the king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste, the scriptures say, and he declared to his counsellors, didn't we not cast three men into that fire? And they answered to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar, Came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come out. And then they came out from the fire. Now, hopefully, we will not find ourselves in such a dire situation. But we do find. Very challenging times coming our way at times. The same God will deliver us from them one way or the other or the third. You see, it is a walk of faith that Jesus promised to be with us till the end of time and that is still relevant for today. So, my friends, what about you? When trials come your way, how do you react to them? Do you get all emotional about it and, or do you sit there and you think to yourself, okay, yeah, this is a bit awkward, this is a bit tough, and this is hurting, but Jesus, you've promised to be with me and you've promised to stand with me and help me to be able to respond in a godly way. Give me your wisdom as I launch into this fiery situation. He will deliver us or he will sustain us through the trials as a witness to his ever abiding presence. And then there is this God, he will guard what you have entrusted to him. In 2 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, it says, speaking of Jesus and his gospel, Paul preached but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Again, we could apply the important words investigation here. Now, not ashamed is, is pretty upfront. It simply means what it says He is not ashamed to be known as a follower of Christ. He's not ashamed to declare that before whoever comes to him. He's not ashamed of these things. We know simply what that means. But there are other words there which need just a little explanation. And they are, I know, I am convinced, and the word able. And I want to quickly give you this. I know. This is a primary verb, and it is here borrowed from the past tense. So what? He knows now the comfort and protection of God because he has already experienced it in the past and he has found it to be totally reliable in the present. That's what that means. I know this because I have the knowledge of it in my history. And then he says, I am convinced. It comes from a primary verb and means that the question is no longer asked. The question no longer needs to be asked because it is satisfactorily answered, completely satisfactorily answered. Why? Because I know in whom I've believed. So whatever fiery trial comes Paul's way, whatever fiery trial comes your way, you may confidently say, I know in whom I have believed. I am convinced, he says. And able, the word able. Well, that word, there's some words that come out of it, the original word, and it's powerful, strong, mighty, able power. In other words, power that actually does something achieve something, and uh, uh, and the most simplest of words, and it has, um, it is full of finality. It's what it comes out of. It's full of finality, and it's the word able. It is full of finality. In other words, the whole question. Of whether I am safe in God's care is not even a question for me because I am totally convinced, because I know whom I have believed and everything that I have committed to him, he will keep it. Now, I uh, wish I had that uh, PowerPoint up because I could show you some funny pictures but, um I'll try and describe them to you. See, at this point, uh, I was going to say to you, I had a go at uh, flying the simulator plane out here at the historical village. Uh, It's an interesting little exercise. I challenge you to go and do that. And it showed me that I was able to land the plane well. Sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes. And at that point, I was going to have a plane that I'd seen that was sitting on its, on its front propeller up and down like this. <laughs> and it was quite a, quite a, a funny photo. Um, but, you know, you might, you might want someone to fly your plane who can land it upright every time, wouldn't you? And so it is with walking through this world. You want to walk with someone who is reliable in every circumstance. Every circumstance. You see, he is able to save forever. Because of Jesus' great ability, we confidently read in Hebrews 7 verse 25, Uh, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is always interceding for you. Right now, this very second, he is interceding with the Father on your behalf. And one final verse I want to give you today, that he is able to keep you from stumbling. Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Isn't that a remarkable thing? He is able to present you blameless. Now, how many times do you feel that guilt and that blame from things that come back to your mind? Christ is going to present you, without any of that, completely blameless to the Father. And he is able to do that. I don't know how he's able to do that, but he is able to do that. And we remember that, that those few words there about Abel, it is full of finality. He has finished it, it is completed, it is done. Amen.